for you in preaching for you out of Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. So as Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius and the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, just as those who heard the proclamation of your might, your creation, your lordship, and the salvation of your Son, and come to believe and hold to these truths. May our faith be strengthened. May our faith be rooted by the work of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would pour out your grace on us, that we would know you, follow you, glorify you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are still in Athens. Last week we were introduced to Athens as Paul was fleeing from Thessalonica um, as it didn't go well there. He did have some come to believe and there were those, not Thessalonica, but Berea, sorry, I've skipped Berea. Um, But even those in Thessalonica came to Berea and caused trouble. He had to flee from Berea. And he is now landed in Athens, and he is waiting on some reinforcements with Timothy and Silas. 
And while he is there and he is preaching to them, he first he encounters really philosophies. Um, again, if you go to Athens even now, they will highlight and tell you about all the different statues and different things that they have of the gods that they worshipped. And if you do any kind of Greek history, you know about Greek mythology and you know about the different gods. And you will notice that in those particular gods are the human characteristics that we have. You have the god of love, but you also have the god of war. You have different gods that represent the human experience. And these particular statues are shaped by the hands of man. And it becomes their objects of worship. But as Luke highlighted for us, that even though those particular statues are there, it was their philosophies, it was really their beliefs that get to the heart of what they truly worshipped. And we talked about those particular beliefs of the Epicureans and the Stoics, and really the overall posture of the Athenians and their desire to be amused by novelty. And we saw there some good attributes and also some bad attributes. Typically, in all of those accounts, those particular characteristics are desirable characteristics. We saw that the Epicureans, they liked pleasure. Well, who doesn't like pleasure? We know that they like to be pain-free. How many of us want to have pain? We saw that the Stoics had virtues that they celebrated. Wisdom, courage, temperance. Injustice. All of these things were good, but these were all truly, even though they had lots of gods that represent those characters, it was a godless, really, understanding of these particular attributes. And so these were man centered religions based upon their philosophies, that even though they had all of these gods in their mist in statue form, their ultimate belief was, was that the creators and creator of the world, was really distant from them, from far away. And that really there was kind of a negative viewpoint, as we kind of joke that you go from Epicurean to Stoic once you realize that the Epicurean life is unattainable on this earth, that you become kind of a Stoic. It was funny, Luke mentioned that it's kind of like a country music song. You know, all the things, and you lose your woman, you lose your truck, you lose your job. You know, and they begin, country music songs like that are more stoic in the end. But that's the way life is. Life is difficult, and they really had to find ways to bring about some kind of understanding of all these things. And Paul comes in, and he bypasses all of these particular statues of these different false gods, and he comes to this place, and I believe that there was actually a a stone that they still have today that you can go to, or at least one that is representative of it, that had the inscription to the unknown God. And he uses this opportunity because they, in their own mind, in their own worship, in their own religion, knew that there was something beyond even the gods that they had contrived themselves. That there was something that transcended beyond this human-centered religion. And so he decides to minister to them, use it as an evangelical opportunity to teach them about the one and true God. As he goes through, he says, I perceive in every way you are very religious. Now, I want us to think about that term. He saw in every way in their life, in everything that they did, 
that they were religious. What does religion mean? What does it mean to be religious? What would be a definition if you were given the responsibility of making up a dictionary? What would you describe as the definition of religion or being religious? belief system. Good. Any other descriptions? To be devoted to an ideal or greater power. Good. Devotion to an idea or a greater power. Very good. Anything else? How people structure their beliefs about God. How they structure them about God. So a, a structure, a framework. So it would be a, a collaboration of beliefs. Anything else? There's one more. So you have a belief system. You have a devotion. What do you typically do if you believe something and you're devoted to something? What would be the next thing that you would do with that? You would practice it in some way. It would have an outcome to what your framework is. And so a belief system, if you look at the most generic definitions in the dictionary about religion or religious Um, or being religious, it is a set of beliefs, a devotion, practices. It's a worldview, typically of their understanding of a God or some kind of higher power, something that transcends beyond them, but is not always exclusively acknowledging that there's a God. It's primarily a set of beliefs that you are devoted to that you will do some kind of practice. The Latin root of the word religion is made up of the words like bind, bond, obligation, to have a reverence, a vow, that there is some kind of binding to a thought. It is some kind of overcoming connection in your life that structures how you think. It structures how you act. And so... The definition of religion is really applicable, I believe, to everyone. And I think Paul saw here that even though they had these different gods, he was seeing that in their philosophies and their general way of life and how they act, that really ultimately that everybody in every way is religious. I have a few, very few group of a few people who are atheists that I've had some correspondence with, and they cannot stand to be called religious or that they have a religion. I'm like, well, you have a religion. No, we are totally, absolutely away from religion. We believe this, this, and this, and this, and this, and we do this, this, and this. Like, Sounds like a religion. <laughs> you have a belief system, and you have a devotion to that belief system that therefore comes out in all of these particular actions that you do. It's impossible to be non-religious. Now, you may... Be agnostic or atheistic in your religion. You may be pagan or Wiccan in your religion, but everyone is religious. If their brain is operable and they're acting out the thoughts in their brain, they typically have some kind of religion. It doesn't matter how much or how small those thoughts are, there is an interwovenness to how they think and respond to the things that are going on in their mind. Everyone is religious. 
Here we see a group of people that I think really parallel our culture, and I think the more we think about it, it is probably of all of the groups that Paul has encountered, even though all of them had attributes that are similar to us, I believe that the Epicurean, Stoic, Athenian way of life, really a collection and collaboration of all of those thoughts, are most definitive of where we are today in this culture. And I think it's one of the most challenging places to be. If you think about it, how many of you have read the epistle to the, to the Athenians? There's not one. <laughs> it was a very challenging place to minister to. They didn't give a negative response here. They didn't chase him out of town. But why would they need to change? They weren't thinking about a big G God in their life, dominating their life. They were already the God of their own life. Now, in reality, all things that oppose the true Yahweh God is some, self of, some sort of a self-religion. But this was even more meaty, filled out religion that the gods that they had in physical form were truly just representations of themselves. It was a very overt worship of man. And because of that, it wasn't an easy place to evangelize. Now, granted, we know that the church did take root there in time, and it's where you even have the Greek Orthodox coming from. On the particular rock that we are talking about that's called the Areopagus, it's a place now that the structures are there. There's an actual church built there. Now, we can get into a discussion about the um, trueness of the Greek Orthodox Church, but Christianity did have an effect and took, take root in that area, but it was a very challenging place, just as we find here that I believe that evangelism is most difficult in America in many ways because people think they have all of these things figured out. So the question that I would have for us, assuming that since we are American Christians here worshiping today, as we go through this, I want you to think about how are you really religious? Now, don't just go over here at church. We're Christians. We've been baptized. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. That's true. That's good. That is a part of our religion. But think about what Paul says. He says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, some of you may give you some kind of yourself a self-assessment that I'm a little bit religious or I'm very religious. But I believe this statement that Paul is telling them that really everyone ultimately are very religious. Even if you're like, you know what, I have a very negative view of the world, and I'm just going to sit like a lump on a log and do nothing. Well, that would be a very extreme religion, wouldn't it? <laughs> you would have a certain worldview that had a significant impact that your practice is pretty scary and pretty sad. That would be an extreme religion in my mindset. So even in that degree, it's still a religious type of response. It's a set of beliefs that fill out a practice. So think about every way in your life that you're a religious. And then ask yourself, is your professed religion truly the religion that you are operating off of? Does your devotion, your binding that you're, what you're bound to and what your actions are, does it reflect your professed set of beliefs? Because there should be some sort of consistency in that framework. If you have a set of beliefs 
and you have a certain devotion, it should look like a certain kind of practice. But by the time you get to practice from your belief, how much of that has changed through the transition of what you are truly devoted to? I believe that many of us, and I confess this before you, we are still very much more like this, con- this connection of Epicurean and Stoic thought based upon where we're, what we're feeling on those particular days. I think there's an inconsistency even as we come here saying, yes, this is our true authority. I believe we're probably a lot more like the Athenians in our practice. I highlighted that even with our use of our continual use of being on the internet or looking for information, looking for something new. That's how the Athenians dealt with their thought process. They had to have some kind of new thought. They had to be amused by something. They couldn't find themselves settled upon any kind of reality of truth. Do you really worship what you really believe? Or do you really believe what you say you worship? Now, all of us will have to just consider that in our own hearts. But how you think and how you act, how you commit yourself, and how you respond to the world, how you respond ultimately to God, will really give you the answer to that. So Paul comes in and he uses this place that was a place to give devotion or at least recognition to this unknown God to surpass all of these really man-centered ideas, to try to bring their thoughts, to transcend their thoughts to the true God, to what they should be worshiping. And he was dealing and conflicting with them or having contrast with them with the idea that there is this unknown God, this assumption that God, that the real God, is unknowable. Now, I think that's a pretty prominent belief system even today. In fact, I think it's almost a understood and assumed virtue that you can't really know who God is. I think because of all the diverse opinions and religions and diverse denominations that what people have come to conclude, and you can typically run into this when you meet people like, Well, I don't think any of us really have the full truth. So therefore, I don't think that any of us can declare that we really know who God is. Therefore, none of us can really tell the other person how they should be living their life. It's a a pretty prominent philosophy, even within the church, that really the virtue is, is that we all need to just let everybody believe what you want to believe And then we'll just try really hard to get along. In the end, even in the evangelical world, I think many of us kind of react off of a thought process that's really more agnostic. That, yeah, there is a God, but since there's so many different denominations and different opinions, none of us can really actually say anything about what God is and who God is and who she is or he is or what he really wants us to do. That is the modern religion that has began to spread all across the world. It is this assumption that God is unattainable. Paul is going to respond to that particular assumption that God is unknowable. 
And he even refers to some of the truths of their poets to try to draw them to the truth that God is attainable, that he is knowable, that we are connected to God, that he is not some distant God far away. And it's a hard thing to consider because it begins to make us realize that if this is true, then there should be some kind of response. There should be some kind of transition. Let us read further into this. It says that, we go to uh, verse 26, it says, and he made from everyone, uh, let me back up, I think I skipped over here. Verse 24, the God I'm going to proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He first highlights two particular attributes about this unknown God that should be very knowable. One, he is the one who is the creator. Paul comes to these people and says, first, we need to understand that God is the one who created all things. And who created you. You did not create him. You did not create gods. He is not one who can be served like what you are serving here as another person, as a statue that you've created. He does not live in a temple. He has created all things and has given to you human life. He also says that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not just one who created all things. He has authority over all things. He is a one that we are to respond to as one with authority. His decision is the way to go. His way is the only way. He is Lord of heaven and of earth. But he is one that even in how he has done things has made it so that he is attainable, that you could seek him, that you could perhaps feel your way toward him, and you can actually find God. Elton John has a song that goes like this. It says, if there was a God in heaven, what is he waiting for? And then he goes on and expresses really a belief system of justice and virtue that everyone should universally agree to and be moved by to use as evidence against God. Well, if there was a God, if there is a God in heaven, he shouldn't be waiting around. He should be helping the hungry. He should be helping the the suffering. He should be doing this and he should be doing that. And ultimately, that is what is in our hearts many times when we have things not go our way. God, why would you do this or why would you do that? It's very interesting that even here at this particular place in Athens, the Areopagus, what that means is is it's a place of judging Ares. That is where they did a lot of judgment of murders at this particular location. This particular court that Paul is standing before is a court that was typically where people would go to try murder cases. Now, they did other cases also, but their primary responsibility was to judge cases of homicide. 
And the name is a name where the gods had gathered at Areopagus to judge Ares. Anybody know who the god who Ares is? What was he the god of? The god of war. They were putting him on trial for murder. So there is this thought process that even there, that the gods can be judged by the virtues that are in the mind of mankind. And it's very similar to what Elton John is saying here. It's like, if there was a god, then we're going to judge him according to our virtues. And how we think, we're going to shape how he should be based upon how we think about things. And because we typically like those particular virtues and we don't like some of the suffering that we see in the world, we often fall to the same deception that if there is a God, we can't know him. And if we could somehow another find him, he would seem to be very guilty to be against our virtues and our justice system. There is an assumed virtue to admitting that there's no way that we can truly know God and really know what he wants. It's a posture of humility. To speak with authority and certainty is to be considered to be arrogant. The problem with that is there is a default posture in everyone to claim some level of absolute certainty, even if there is certainty that there's no way to achieve certainty. You automatically are creating an absolute belief system. If you're like, it's impossible for us to feel confident and certainly know something, then you're automatically making an absolute statement that we cannot know God, that we cannot possibly know how justice really should be handled. And if you look, everyone, ultimately, no matter what you believe, you are defaulting to some kind of absolute belief. Even if it's like, there's no way I can know anything. I don't know anything. I'm an idiot. (laughs) You're still making some kind of absolute statement. It's impossible to be neutral in this particular place. There is no neutral ground. Everyone is very religious, and everyone is making some kind of response of an absolute way of thinking. Even if they're saying, this is just for me. I can't make other people think this way. True, there is this biblical principle of liberty of conscience. We can't force ideas on the people that the Bible is not clear on. We know that we cannot judge people according to things that there is no biblical authority to stand behind that. We all like the terminology, you can't judge me. It's a very popular response to whenever someone is being admonished. You can't judge me. You don't have a right to judge me. And we have Paul who will back that up to a certain degree. It says in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to be putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. What is he talking about there? When when he is talking, he is talking about things that are not totally clear with the idea of whether to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, he would make it very clear that we shouldn't be sacrificing to false idols. There's no doubt about that. If we saw somebody sacrificing to idols... Paul would say, tell that person to stop. He's not going to say, ah, you can't judge that person. But then when it comes to whether someone should eat food that was used in the sacrifice of idols, if they bought at the market someone who used that food in a religious exercise, 
should they be worried by conscience not to eat that? And he leaves that to be a liberty of conscience based upon how that affects people who are around them and the ministry that they're a part of. But we take that particular statement and we think we can just use that as a blanket statement. You cannot judge me about anything in life. Well, that's not biblical. That's not what Paul is saying. Jesus himself says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment in John chapter 7. That we can't just make bad judgments. We can't just make judgments that are inconsistent with the scriptures. And we can't make judgments just based upon a little bit of information. That it needs to be in line with the principles of the scripture. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5... It says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Therefore, purge the evil person from among you. Paul here is instructing to us that we are to judge those in the church. And in, in the context, this particular context, context in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is in the context of sexual immorality, greed. Deception, addiction, abusive talk, and idolatry. The devotion and worship of things that are not true. That are things that we are instructed to actually admonish and encourage one another to flee from. What we see here is that We do have the ability to judge. We have the responsibility to judge. We have the responsibility to make definite considerations, but it's not based upon personal and man-made imagination and opinion. It is based on the declaration of the scriptures. The whole phrase, liberty of conscience, is a Protestant phrase. Luther says, as he was being told to recant the things that he had written, he said, unless I am convinced by scripture in plain reason, my conscience is captive to what? The word of God. That is the ultimate judge. It is God that is the judge. And I believe that our biggest problem and what Paul is getting to here by using this prop as the unknown God, he is delivering to them a message about a capital G God. About a God that has the authority because he is the creator, he is Lord, and he is Savior. Those three attributes were not things that they focused on. They didn't really focus on a God being the creator. They made up these different kinds of ideas of how the earth may have been created, but it was not one rooted in truth. Go read Psalm 145. I was going to read it today, but I think it's a bit long. And it tells us who God is. It explains to us all of these particular attributes of God being creator, Lord, and Savior. And we see that Paul is playing off of something here that he's already read in Deuteronomy, that he's connecting with their particular poets. When you read Deuteronomy, it says that the word of God is near you. God is near you. It is right before you. God has presented his truth before you. When he wrote to the Romans, he says that we are without excuse that even his creation shows us his holy attributes. 
we see that Paul knows and he is delivering to them that they first need to understand that there is a God. It is a creator. He is the Lord. And because he is the Lord, he does not fall into their understandings of the false gods. He is knowable, not unknown. He is near. He is not distant. He is not mortal man with fleshly sins. He is eternally holy. A holy Lord that has laws and righteousness that reflect his character. And therefore, he is one that surpasses any kind of justice. Remember, they are at a place of court. They are a place of judgment where even the gods are being judged. He's saying that this God is the judge over all things. And so as he is delivering this reality to them, he tells them that being then his offspring, we ought not think that the divine being being is like gold or silver or stone. He's not like the, 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 the soil the stuff that we make our gods from. He is not an image formed by art or the imagination of man. We cannot contrive of ourselves who God really is. It is shown to us in the reality of who God is. And he tells them that the times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people, Jew and Greek, everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He is going to bring the true righteous judge. He has brought the righteous judge in Jesus Christ. And he has become the victor of justice by being raised from the dead. Now, he's not as long-winded as I am in his proclamation here, but what he's ultimately is proclaiming here is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. We go back to what David read this morning, how God was tired of the sacrifices, the sacrifices that he commanded. Why would he be tired of, of the sacrifices that he commanded. Anybody want to venture a guess? Why would God tell the Israelites to make these sacrifices and then give them this harsh rebuke that, man, I am so sick and tired of your sacrifices. I'm not happy with the blood of goats. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? Is he being schizophrenic? Their attitude wasn't good. They They weren't being thankful. But what else? They weren't acknowledging what the sacrifice was for. He was talking about how they are still just wallowing in their sin, that their religious practice was to do these particular things to to assume that they're appeasing a righteous God. But the whole of that whole sacrificial system was to teach them that they are vile sinners in need of a Savior. It was to point to them that something had to happen to bring justice for the injustice of their heart. It was a proclamation of the gospel. They weren't being affected by the reality that they needed Jesus Christ. And what 
Paul has presented to them was that he is not just creator, he is not just a righteous Lord, he is one who had to be raised from the dead. Well, if he was raised from the dead, why did he die? Because he was the chief sacrifice for our sins. This word is Jesus Christ. This truth, this reality, this God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is Jesus Christ and him raised from the dead. It is Jesus Christ reigning as Lord of our lives. So ask yourself, as we think about the reality of that truth that Paul is even laying out before them, do we be those who truly in our lives, do our lives mock that reality? Do our lives and our practice really reflect the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his reign? Are we mocking God like the Israelites mocked God by doing all of these practices that did not have the impact and the effect of the recognition of their need to repent and to believe? Or are we those who are like, well, let me keep listening about that. Are we just kind of somewhere in the middle? We're not totally grasping that. I have a feeling that most of us kind of, like, we'll keep hearing about this. We'll do it again. Let's, let's come back to Bible study. Let's come back to worship. Or are we those who truly believe? And we'll follow, like Dionysus did here. Dionysus was a judge. That's what an Arab pagate, I don't know if I'm saying it right, Arab pagate. He's a judge. He is one who was judging other people, and he came to the grip and understanding that there was a greater judge before him. In many ways, we are all ultimately judges of each other. We may not treat each other poorly because of it, but we all have this different, we all have a belief system and a reaction, and we act it out. We read in the scriptures this morning that in our confession of sin, that there was a loss of love. In our admonition given to us about the sacrifices that we would use, the problem that we had is that we would, how we would use our tongue against each other. There should be an effect that has a reality connected to the reality of Jesus Christ in him crucified. I hope that we can take this word with us today and, and I hope that in time that we will be more free of these idols that Paul will expose through the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit how we are still worshiping many of these gods. But that's what Jesus came for. He came to destroy our idols. He loves us so much that he knows that we are truly bound to our own sin. If you look at the whole of Scripture, it is about the release of those who are captive. So I pray that you will not find the admonition to be hard, admonition to be hard, but that it would be freeing, that you would recognize where we are captive, and that with repentance and faith, know that there is freedom and forgiveness. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we